Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's such a fun song, I think. You know, there, there are people who are younger than me that, that they, there's a saying they use right now. They say, let's go. When they hear something exciting, when they hear something they want to do, they say, let's go. Let's go. So this morning, I want to hear you guys say, let's go. One, two, three. Let's go. Okay? When we hear something that excites us, when we see God moving, when we get that sense that God's calling us to something, that we're being called to dive in, our response shouldn't be, well... Or wait a second, what if our response was, let's go. With all the excitement we can muster, let's go. Today we're going to look at the story about Jesus walking in water, and it shows up in three of the four Gospels. Now I've told you this this before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels, and that word synoptic means same scene. Which means that when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of the same stories show up in those three Gospels. Um, And they actually think that Mark is the first gospel written, and Matthew and Luke probably had Mark's gospel as they wrote their own down, and so that's one of the reasons that there's so many similarities is because they use some of the same material to write their gospels. And then there's the gospel of John, kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's a little bit different, a little bit weird. John doesn't write a biography of Jesus in the same way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke does. John has this creative streak to him. He has a, a poetic way of writing and talking, and, and he's incredibly, deeply theological. I mean, John's the one that writes that the word was with God and is God, right? None of the other gospels begin that way. John has a different way of going about it. And so when I say that this story shows up in three out of four gospels, you might think, oh, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's not. It's Matthew, Mark, and John, those three Gospels have this story in them. Each of those three Gospels have this story directly after Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in two of those three, it happens, the feeding the 5,000 happens right after Jesus gets the news that John the Baptist has been killed. Now, why is that important? Context. Context is so essential when we go to the scripture so we're not just pulling the pieces that we like and getting rid of the ones we don't like and doing whatever we want. We can make scripture say whatever we want if we just cherry pick all the verses we like and throw the rest out. Context becomes essential. So let's set the scene a little bit. Actually, I have a, we'll just put this on the screen for you that way. You remember what we're talking about this morning. Matthew tells us that when Jesus hears of his cousin's death, and, and if you didn't know that Jesus and John the Baptist are related. Now, if you have a cousin, that means it's your father or mother's sibling's child, right? That's a cousin. Jesus and John, probably not actual cousins, probably second or third or fourth cousins, but suffice it to say, they thought of one another as family, okay? So like, I don't have any cousins, my father's an only child, but his cousin's children, I grew up calling my cousins, right? That's the sort of relationship here. So Jesus gets word that his cousin has been killed, and 
Matthew tells us that he wants to withdraw to a solitary place. He wants to be alone. Mark tells us that the crowds followed Jesus to such an extent at this time that Jesus cannot get away from them to eat or rest. Neither can his disciples who are with him. This is another reason that Jesus probably needs to go to a solitary place. He got bad news. He's exhausted. He hasn't eaten. So he wants to get away. So Matthew and Mark then go on to tell us that the crowds that were following Jesus got wind of where he was going and they ran on foot from town to town to get ahead of him to the location where he was going. So I want you to just sit in this with me, all right? One of the things we can do when we come to Scripture and we read a story in Scripture is we can put ourselves into it and try and feel what the people in the story are feeling. That way we get a sense of what's happening. Jesus has just found out that his friend and family member has been killed by the Roman government for his faith. John is killed for being a prophet, for being the very thing that Jesus is and doing the very things that Jesus is doing. Have you ever been in a car accident or a part of some sort of tragedy where you walked away and somebody else didn't? Maybe, like we talked about earlier, it's even growing up in an abusive household where you got out and somebody else didn't. Imagine the weight that Jesus must feel when he realized that his cousin has been killed for doing and being the very same thing that Jesus is and is also doing. That is weighty. And because Jesus is loving and caring for the crowds and teaching and healing those who are sick, he, he also realizes disciples haven't been eating and resting either. He, he needs some space. So they grab a boat, the disciples and Jesus, and they push off from shore to get some space. And what does the crowd do? The crowd runs ahead of him to his destination so that when Jesus and the disciples get their boat to the shore to dock, there is a crowd in front of them that is probably far bigger than the crowd they just left. What would you do? What would you do carrying the news and the weight that you're carrying, the exhaustion, the lack of eating, trying to leave the crowd, get a little bit of peace, you get there and the crowd has grown. The same people you just left are standing in front of you and they brought their friends and their neighbors and their family. What would you do? Would you turn the boat around? I'm out of here, no way, not even gonna dock, I'm out. Would you yell at the crowd? Get out of here, don't you know? I just need some space. What does Jesus do? Jesus sees the crowd And scripture tells us that he sees them and goes, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion for them. And so Jesus begins to teach and he begins to heal all those who are in front of him. He does this all day. And as it gets into the evening, the disciples approach him and they say, hey, Jesus, send the crowds away. Send them away so they can go get food. And, and, and kind of when you read that part of a scripture, you, and what I, by the way, what I did is I kind of marked Matthew and, and, and uh, John and Mark 
all the different places where the story shows up, and I just kept flipping back and forth to get a sense of what's happening in what order. So you're hearing me refer to all of those three, by the way, this morning. Um, you get the sense that the disciples think the crowds are so locked into Jesus, so enthralled with Jesus, that if Jesus doesn't send them away, they won't go. If Jesus doesn't say, stop, okay, I'm, I'm exhausted, I need to eat, they're gonna keep bringing people for him to heal. They get the sense that the crowd won't go away unless Jesus says, go away. And I think this is important because what we pick up on in here when Jesus responds to the disciples is there is a difference between the disciples and Jesus. There's a difference in timing between what the disciples want and between what Jesus wants. There's a difference in their wishes. There's a difference in their approach. There's a difference in their desire between Jesus and the disciples because the disciples say, Jesus, send them away to get food and Jesus says, they don't need to go. You feed them. Sometimes, Jesus has this plan, and for all of our wisdom, for, for everything we think we're doing for caring for somebody else, it's still just not Jesus' plan. The disciples aren't being rude and unwise. They're thinking of the crowds and thinking, hey, they, they should eat. Get them out of here. And Jesus is saying, no. That's, that's not the plan that I have. Now, this isn't our story for this morning, so I don't want to get too wrapped up in this. I, I love this stuff. Um, but let me get to the point of the story. The disciples go around and they start collecting food. And Jesus prays over the food. He miraculously blesses the food. And what was a tiny bit of food becomes enough food to feed 5,000. By the way, Scripture says 5,000 men. It doesn't include women and children that would have been there. So we're not talking a crowd of 5,000. We're talking of a crowd of much more than 5,000. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus blesses the food, and suddenly there's enough food to actually feed $5,000. That's crazy. It would take a fortune to feed 5,000 people. It would take so much food to feed 5,000 people, and all they have is a tiny little bit. And I think, this is why context is important, I think a little bit is kind of the point. It's a reoccurring theme here this morning. The point is what a little bit of faith can do. Anybody remember what a faith the size of a mustard seed can do? What's it do? Faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Faith the size of a mustard seed can heal the lame. It can give the blind man their sight back. And, and faith the size of a mustard seed can take five loaves of bread and two fishes and multiply them enough to feed 5,000 people. It just, it takes a little bit of faith, just a, just a little bit. I want you to remember that this morning. Hold on to that. Like, grab that. I'm giving it to you. You take that, okay? A little bit of faith. Hold on to that this morning. Now, there's something that John records in his gospel that nobody else does about the feeding of the 5,000. And I think it's really important. The crowd sees this thing that Jesus does, blessing the food, feeding this whole crowd of people, and they begin to murmur amongst themselves. They begin to talk and gossip among each other, and they say things like this. They say, this is the prophet. We are, we, they start to get this thing about Jesus. Who is this guy? Who is the... Who is this guy from Galilee, this guy from Nazareth, this rabbi, this nobody? Who, who is this guy? We think he might be the prophet. This is the prophet that John said would come. This is the prophet that we've been waiting for. They begin to search for his identity. 
Now, while the people are eating their food, while they're getting their bellies full, Jesus has the disciples get into the boat and push off from shore. But he doesn't go with them. Jesus stays behind to dismiss the crowds. Now, remember, the disciples wanted to dismiss the crowds already. They wanted to send the crowds away to go get their food and and find their own food. And Jesus says, no, 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 I've got something for them. And what does he do? Miraculously feeds all of them. And then Jesus says, now it's time for them to go. So perhaps there's something really important about getting to the point, doing the miracle that causes people to speculate, who is this? While the disciples begin rowing across the lake, Jesus dismisses the crowds, and then scripture tells us he goes to a mountain to be by himself. He goes to a mountain to pray. All three gospels tell us that Jesus is not in the boat. Matthew and Mark tell us that he went to pray, so he's finally getting his private time. He's finally getting that solitude that he needs. He's getting that connection to the Father that's so important to him, and the disciples are also gonna get some private time. Okay, there's no crowds on the boat. It's just them. That's important. Now, each gospel says it a little bit differently. But think of the disciples and the boat that they're on being in the center of the lake. And I'm saying lake this morning. It's a sea. It's 13 miles long. It's eight miles across. It's big, okay? Now, I understand. I've never been there. It's on my bucket list. But I understand that you can see the shore from the middle of the lake. Like you can see the cliffs around the edge, but you're miles away. So the scriptures kind of say it in different ways. Some of the the scriptures tell us they were a certain number of hours into the rowing. Some say a certain number of miles. Regardless, they're about the middle of the lake. And when they get to the middle of the lake, the wind begins to blow. The waves begin to get choppy. The sea gets rough. Now, the sea that they're in is well below sea level. There's high cliffs on every single side of this. And so when the wind comes across the plains and it goes down into the, the sea, it actually can create these swirling, terrible storms. And the sea can get incredibly choppy. Just because it's a sea, just because it's a lake, doesn't mean that this water does not get rough. It gets crazy rough. According to the Gospel of John, It's at this time, while the disciples are in the middle of the lake and the waves are getting choppy, that they see Jesus walking across the water. Across the water. They didn't look out and go, hey, there's somebody swimming to us. They look out and they see Jesus walking across the water. According to John, they're afraid, right? And Jesus calls out and says, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. And, and, and I kind of like reading each account of this because each, each disciple has kind of their own little, it's almost comedic. Um, John, when he records it, he says that everybody's scared, right? So you can kind of imagine that they're in the boat, you know, they're rowing and they, you know, they see somebody walking and they, they're scared. He's like, hey, no, it's me, don't worry. And then they're like, and then the disciples were, they let him in the boat. They get this sense of like reluctancy, like, this isn't right. Like, there's something we are going, oh, all right, I mean, you said it to you, all right, you can get in the boat. You know, that's, that's kind of the sense I get from John. According to the Gospel of Mark, um, Jesus saw the disciples from his 
high cliff, his mountain wherever he was, he sees the disciples struggling against the wind and the waves. Right? So they're, they're rowing, they're struggling, and so Jesus decides to go out to them. This, is, this kills me. I think this is just so funny, okay? Because, again, you get this picture. They're, they're rowing, and it's so choppy, so they're all over the place. You know, they're, they're rowing and they're rowing. And Jesus goes out to them, and, and Scripture says, when he's about to pass them by, they see him. So Jesus is like, da, 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 you know, and they're, they're rowing, and he's like, hey, and, and they see him, and they're like, it's a ghost. They don't, know who, they don't know who it is. They think it's a ghost of some kind. And so they, they cry out. They're yelling. They're screaming. They're terrified. And I mean, put yourself in the situation. It is the middle of the night. They don't have spotlights, no LEDs, lanterns, if the ocean spray or the, the sea spray hasn't put them out. There's not a whole lot of light to see by, okay? And suddenly there's a figure walking across the water, and they are freaking out. And what does he do? He says, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. And then he climbs into the boat, according to Mark, and the waves die down. Pretty cool. It's Matthew's account, though, that looks a little bit different than the other two. It says that shortly before dawn... Jesus goes in the direction of the disciples. And so you almost get this sense that Jesus is on the mountaintop praying, and he's like, yeah, it's that time. All right. And he heads to the direction of where he thinks the disciples are in the lake. In the midst of the wind and the waves, you know, they're bobbing up and down. They're rowing. They're not making a lot of headway. And what do they see? This figure walking across the water again. And again, they freak, okay? They're screaming. They're yelling. They're terrified. And Jesus says, Hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. And, and, and here's the big difference. John and Mark tell us that Jesus got into the boat. Matthew tells us that Peter steps forward and Peter says, all right, if it's you, command me to come out there with you. Now let's just pause the story for a second. Peter is such a weirdo. How many people here, okay, how many people here have ever questioned God? or doubted God, or struggled with his existence, or, or asked questions about who he is, or, or ever even asked for a sign. God, give me a sign. See, the, the, the point here is that this is all about God's identity. Like, who is this guy, truly? I mean, Peter, Peter's blunt about it. If it's you, tell me to come out there with you. Like Peter's, he's doing the double check, okay? Everybody else is like, shit, it's him. You can get in the boat, you know? And in Mark, at least, the waves died down, so you have a good sense that, oh, he's legit. The waves died down when he got in the boat. We're all okay. Peter's doing the double check. It's all about God's identity. Now, think back for a second. If you can think back to uh, Sunday school, or, or I don't think I've ever given a sermon on it here, so maybe a previous sermon another time, but there's this story in Exodus 3, where there's a guy named Moses, and I think I can accurately say that this guy named Moses at this point is not a God follower or a God believer. He's out there doing something pretty normal in the desert, being a shepherd, going about his humdrum shepherding duties, and he looks off and he sees a burning bush. Now, the weird thing about this burning bush is that the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. So the bush is still there, even though it's burning, burning, burning. Now think about another story, maybe one we're talking about this morning. 
where there's a bunch of people doing a very normal thing like sailing a boat and they see something that's totally out of the norm, not a burning bush, but a person walking on top of the water to them. Now Moses checks out the bush, right? He goes to the bush, checks it out. The bush is a representation of God on earth and the bush, God, has a mission for Moses. Moses has every excuse in the book why he doesn't want to go on this mission, right? I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you read Exodus 3 and 4, Moses has every excuse under the book, in the book, to try and not go. And, and what, what, the, what God does is says, he answers every single thing. He says, well, you think that? I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that? I'll do this. And, and what I think God is essentially saying is, Moses, don't be afraid, right? And then, and then Moses asks a really important question. He says, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. He says, it's me, right? Hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. The disciples check out this ghost walking on the water, and remember, the ghost is Jesus. Jesus is a, is a representation of God on earth. He's got a mission for the disciples. Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. It's me. And one disciple who's still not quite sure says, okay, if it's really you, command me to come out in the water with you. Now, folks, I think this is essential because I think we can really miss this if we don't, if we don't sit in for a second. I really believe this is about Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity gets questioned all over the place. Have you ever noticed when Jesus is in the desert being tempted by Satan, it's all about his identity. Satan consistently asks him the question over and over and over, if, it's, if you're really the son of God, then do this. If you're really the son of God, then do this, right? It's all about his identity. His identity gets questioned again and again and again. And the disciples have to be asking, especially having followed him, especially having seen these miracles, just like the crowd. The crowd is going, this is the prophet, isn't it? This is the prophet we've been waiting for. Is this the prophet? The disciples have to be asking the same question. Who is this guy? Is this the I am come in the flesh? Is this just another prophet? John the Baptist was a prophet. Some of Jesus' disciples followed John the Baptist before Jesus was somebody that they followed. And he just got killed. Who is this guy? And you might think to yourself right now, Nick, I think you're stretching a little bit. I don't think this is really all about his identity. I think that this is really just a cool miracle that I think we should be you know, praising and honoring and glorifying God for. And I'm going to say, yeah, do that. Praise, honor, and glorify God. But let's dig in a little bit. This is about his identity, because remember that one gospel that forgot to write this story, the gospel who shall not be named, Luke? After Luke records the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't record the story of Jesus walking on the water. Instead, he records the story where Jesus goes to a place of solitude with the disciples, and he says to them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, oh, well, some say John the Baptist, Others say, Elijah, some say that you're a prophet from long ago, come back to life. And Jesus says to the disciples sitting with him, he says, but who do you say I am? And it's our weirdo friend, Peter, who steps forward and says, well, you are the Messiah. You are God's Messiah. Peter ventures a guess. Peter is bold enough to step outside what every other disciple was doing when Jesus asked the question. It's Peter who says, well, if it's really you, command me to come out with you. So let's get back into the story. Jesus says, okay, 
Come on out, Peter. Come out. So Peter gets out of his comfort zone. He gets out of the boat, and he, Peter, walks on water. And I think that is, that's my favorite part of the whole story. Peter, I, I don't have a problem with Jesus walking on water. I think that's, I mean, Jesus is God, right? We just said he's the physical representation of God on earth, right? It makes sense to me that God can do whatever God wants to do with the physical world. But Peter is just a guy like you and me, and Peter walks on water. Nobody in all of scripture acts like Peter acts. Nobody. Nobody asks the question that Peter asks. Nobody ventures the guesses that Peter guesses. Nobody gets out of the boat except for Peter. Peter is super weird and super awesome. And I was so thankful he got out of the boat because Peter walks on water. It takes, what do we say? Just a little bit of faith. Just a little bit. What's the, the faith the size of a mustard seed do? It moves mountains. It makes the lame walk. It allows the blind to see. It takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and it multiplies it enough for 5,000 people to eat, and it lets you get out of the boat and walk on water. Now, now go with me, okay? Let's just pretend that I'm, I'm a little bit right this morning. Let's pretend that this story is a little bit about the identity of Jesus. I think Peter understood something that everybody else was missing. When Jesus comes walking across the water, Peter gets that this is about Jesus revealing his divine presence and power. So many things have been about Jesus revealing his divine presence and power. And in so many places, Jesus says, don't tell them. Oh, you know who I am? Don't tell them. But here Jesus comes to the disciples in this moment of solitude, in this moment of peace, in this moment of being away from the crowd, and in a storm. And, and Peter understands that in the storm, Jesus is revealing his divine presence and power. And he has faith. He has just enough, just enough faith that when he says, if it's you, command me to come out there with you, and Jesus says, well, then come. Peter doesn't go, nah, just play it. It's you. Like, come and get in the boat. Let's go. No, no. He's got the little bit. He's got the mustard seed, and he gets out of the boat. He walks across the water. Peter's the one who said, when Jesus asks, who am I? He says, you're the Messiah. And so we need to write this on our hearts this morning. Write this in our brain this morning, okay? Hold on to this. Take this with us wherever we go the rest of our day. The most important, the most powerful, the greatest thing that Peter said to Jesus is command me. Command me to come out there with you. Command me. What would it look like if you and I began our days that way? Like, you woke up today. Awesome. Now what? What if we started out our day saying, Lord, command me. If it's you, Lord, command me to come to you. And we didn't say, nah, just playing. No, no. We go. We say, let's go. John Ortberg wrote a book, and in the book he said, Peter knew that if he was going to walk on water, he was going to have to get out of the boat. And that might seem a little obvious to us, but I just, I mean, think about that. Think about it. Because so many of us never get out of the boat. We want to walk, we say we want to walk on water. We don't get out of the boat. If we're going to talk the talk of listening to Jesus, then we better walk the walk of Peter. That's what I think. 
James 2 says that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So what good is our faith if we say we have it, but we don't act on it when God calls us to do so? How much different would the story be if Peter never stepped out on the water? What stops you? You feel worthless? You wonder if you are worth the risk? You wonder if you are worthy of stepping out? You feel hopeless? World's, world's bad, it's getting worse. I just don't have a lot of hope anymore, so why bother getting out of the boat? Feel helpless? I couldn't get out of the boat if I tried. I've been in the boat so long. I kind of like the boat. I'm used to the boat. I, I don't know that I can get out of the boat anymore. Maybe you're success-driven and you're just afraid of failing. Failure can be incapacitating. It leads us to stay put. It leads us not to take risks. And I'll tell you that most of the sermons I've ever heard in my whole life look at this, as, this story as though it's Peter's failure. But the guy who wrote the book, John Orp- Orpberg, he says the, there's 11 greater failures still in the boat. And that's how I've come to look at it. Do you trick yourself into holding on to something because it gives you the illusion of control? I, I don't care how old you are. That's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. Now, I love canoeing. I've been canoeing for a lot, a lot of years. I've taught a lot of canoeing classes, and I will tell you, every time I see a boat tip, I see people grab the sides, the gunnels of the boat, and they hold on as tight as they possibly can. Their knuckles turn white, holding on until the boat stops rocking. Why? Because it gives them the illusion of control. Something else made the boat rock. Somebody's moving, the waves are getting bad, something, and that has to change for the boat to stop rocking. Holding on to the side of the boat, it just gives you the belief that you're in control of it. it. Makes you feel safe in some way, shape, or form. So what is your boat? What do you hold on to so tight? Who do you hold on to so tight because you think you're running the show? And when the storms come, what if those moments have nothing to do with how good you're running the show? What if those, I don't want to even say moments, let's say seasons, because for some of us, there are seasons of life that are so hard. And what if those tough seasons that come, those stormy seasons that come, they have nothing to do with how great you're running the show, how great your control is. What if they have everything to do with you having just a little bit of faith? What if they have everything to do with Jesus asking you the question, who am I? To you and to you, who am I to you? Many people will call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say. Who am I to you? Am I really Lord of your life? So let's get serious. I mean, let's dig in this morning. What is your boat? What is the thing, the person, the place that you put trust in apart from God? Where do you put your trust when life gets stormy? 
When you start to get worried, when you have that fight, when you lose that job, when your retirement account gets hacked, whatever it might be, where do you put your trust apart from God? Or maybe, maybe life doesn't get stormy because you're actually just standing on the shore. You're wearing your boat shoes, you got your captain's hat on. You say that you like to boat, but your feet are firmly planted on the shore. So you'll never know what it's like to be in the boat. You'll never know what it's like to go through the storm. You'll never know what it's like to have that kind of faith to have somebody walk over the side of the boat and walk on the water to Jesus because you're stuck on the shore. Maybe you're just one of the other 11 disciples that are still standing in the boat, rowing and going, why is there a guy walking on the water? Because Jesus is in front of each of us I believe it wholeheartedly. I believe Jesus is in front of you, in your life, leading, guiding, directing, calling you. He's doing crazy, awesome, insane stuff right in front of you. You're telling each other about it. You're telling me about it. You're posting it on Facebook about the really cool God moment that you had. You're willing to identify him as God, and he has his hand stretched out to you, and he's saying, then come. And instead of responding, you'd stay. You just grab on as tight as you can. Are you really going to let the comfort of your boat keep you from walking on water? I think we have to realistically ask ourselves that question this morning. And I don't want you to think that I'm, think, I'm saying that the road of faith is easy. Because I'm not. You know, Matthew 14 where the story is, if you look back in Matthew 14, you'll see that the wind and the waves, Peter begins to look at them and he begins to sink. The tasks that Jesus calls us to aren't necessarily gonna be easy or fun. They might be daunting and frightening. And that's what Peter found out. Just because he acted out of faith didn't mean that he was gonna find the undertaking simple. I mean, for goodness gracious, he's walking on the water. There's no simple thing about that, right? Peter didn't ask for a guarantee, (laughs) He asked for an opportunity. He asked for an opportunity. Verse 30 says that Peter saw the wind. Peter saw the wind and was afraid and began to sink. So how many times have you stepped out in faith and you sunk in? How many times have you stepped out of faith and feel like, God, why'd you leave me here just to let me flounder? God. God, what are you doing, man? I, I, I swear you led me this way, and now I'm, I'm left here holding the bag, and I just feel like, what's, what's going on, God? Well, why, God, why would you do this to me? How many of us have said that very thing in our prayer, or to our spouse, or to somebody, or posted on, God, why would you do this to me? God, I've given you everything. Why would you do this to me? But, but look at the passage. I mean, I mean, read the story. It doesn't say that when Peter's toe hit the water that God was like, and whipped it up. You know, it didn't say that he made the storm happen when Peter stepped over the side of the boat. The wind and the waves were always there. The whole time. From the moment that Peter sees Jesus to the moment that he says, if it's you, command me to come out there with you, the wind and the waves are there to the moment that he actually steps over to the side of the boat, he begins to walk on water. The waves and the wind are there. It's just that Peter's focus has been taken off of the Savior and is now on the storm. And that's where so many of us get stuck. 
We are in this thing. We are following Jesus, and then we get that really nasty storm, and it blows us apart. And what we do is we end up saying, God, why did you do this to me? Because all we can see is the storm, and we aren't looking at the Savior anymore. Guess who's in the storm with Peter? Jesus is there. He's not on the mountaintop somewhere still praying, watching from a distance and going, oh, look at that. He's there in it, in the midst of it, with Peter. I think the most, I told you the coolest part of the story. Here's the most important part of the story. Peter sees the wind and the waves begins to sink. And and here's what Bible translations say. The NIV says it this way. Instantly, Jesus reached out his hand. The NLT says, immediately, he reached out his hand. The word that they're translating there is a word that means right now, this very second, in that moment, instantly, however you want to say it, instantly, as Peter began to sink, Jesus reached out his hands. And I think that's one of the most, maybe the most powerful thing in the entire story because you and I have all these conceptions about God and our society and our culture has all these conceptions about God and the people that we work with and we meet and we live next to have all these conceptions about God and sometimes they tell me I don't believe in God when I ask them about the God they don't believe in I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't believe in that God either. It's terrible because we have these pictures of, oh, if we fail, if we step out of the boat and we begin to sink beyond below the waves, God's gonna be like, oh, fail, you're done, Right? We think that. We hear about people that have that sort of view. Or we, we have the sort of view where it's like, oh, God made us struggle for a reason, right? So Peter's sinking below the waves, and, and Jesus is like, ah, let's, let's you flounder for a bit. It's going to make you stronger, Peter. Ah, okay, now you're, you're drowning, all right, right? Or the distracted God, the God that's not involved. Peter steps out of the side of the boat. He begins to sink, and, and Jesus is like, oh, i got to call my cell phone, sorry. And he walks, oh, he turns, like, no, that's not who God is. The the picture that we get of who God is, is instantly, immediately, Peter doesn't flounder in the water. He begins to sink, and and God, Jesus, God on earth, reaches out and grabs a hold of Peter and pulls him back to the surface. And the picture that I get is that they walk back to the boat together. I don't know how many steps Peter got before he sank, but he's got all those steps to go back. And now he's got Jesus' hand. And they walk back to the boat together. This is an amazing picture of who God is. Not a God that turns his back on us, but a God who pulled him up, walked with him, beside him, next to him, supported him all the way back to the boat. It's not a picture of a God who turns his back on the world when dreadful things happen. It's not a picture of a God who lets the hard and terrible happen to us for no reason. Bad stuff, painful stuff, tragic stuff, it happens for sure. But then this shows us that in the midst of that storm, and whatever storm you're in, whatever storm you've been through, in the midst of that storm, Jesus is standing there with you with an open hand, and we just have to have our eyes open to it because so much of the time, all we see is the storm. Remember, Peter knew that if he wanted to walk on water, he had to get out of the boat. He didn't ask for a guarantee. He asked for an opportunity. And he walked on water. And when he sank, immediately Jesus was there. 
Guys, you and I can't start a faith journey without taking a step. Peter still had to grab onto Jesus' hand. Knowing Peter, he could have been stubborn. I got this, I got, I got this, God. Blah, 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 blah. He still had to grab on to Jesus' hand. You and I have steps to take. Every single one of us, myself included, we have steps to take. Let's take them. Let's go, right? We hear the call. We say we want it. We claim Jesus is our Lord. He's our Messiah. Who am I? You are Messiah. Then let's go. Take the step. I'm diving in, right? Let's go. And, and I just want to say this one last thing. We never get it all right all the time. If you're here with some misconception, if you're watching online and you have some misconception that says, I have got to do this perfectly 100% of the time or I'm going to get squished by God from the mountaintop. <laughs> we are all a bunch of beautiful messes. Peter was a big, beautiful mess. And even though he was a big, beautiful mess, he's still the only man to walk on water. Right? I'm diving in. How about you? Let's go, right? Let's go? Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.